Recently, as you know, we've had uh, two brothers in the Lord placed on hospice. And uh, very soon, barring uh, intervention by God, they're both going to be home with the Lord. Uh, Just very, very soon. And most of you know Keith Ogard. In fact, if you come in through that uh, uh, southwest door, he would meet you there, greet you there, and he would give you a bulletin. And uh, we, uh, we pray for him and for his wife, Linda, as well. And the other brother is Nils, uh, Nils Nelson. You probably do not know him. He's not been here at a church, but his wife, Alice, attends here. And uh, Nils was diagnosed with terminal cancer, given between three and six months to live. And she said, do you want to get saved? He said, yes, I do. And he did get saved. And uh, he's uh, now reading the Bible, reading John. I saw him Friday, and I said, what are you reading? He said, I'm just continuing on in John. So uh, we're praying for uh, these two dear brothers and asking for God's special grace uh, for them. When I heard that both of these men had gone on hospice, I felt led by the Lord, and I mean that. I felt led by the Lord to develop and bring this message that I've entitled this morning, Facing Death with Resolute Confidence. Now, every one of us, barring the coming of the Lord back in the rapture, are going to be at that doorstep. And so I know that this will be helpful to you as well as to myself uh, as we look at this text, Facing Death with Resolute Confidence. But I'm dedicating this message to Keith and to Nils. And uh, I plan on getting a copy of the CD to them, to their wives, so that they can listen to it. Uh, and, but I know that this will be beneficial for you and me as well. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-8, through 8, and I'd encourage you to use the outline as well. C.S. Lewis, he wrote these words. He said, if I find my, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Actor and comedian Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich. I agree with that. And famous. And do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Interesting, isn't it? Add to that Tom Brady, of course, the New England Patriots star quarterback, winning three Super Bowls. And he made this comment. He asked the question, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? A lot of people would say, this is what it is. I reach my goal, my dream. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't what it's all cracked up to be. And I'll add to that, actress Winona Ryder was famous, making lots of money, and was romantically involved with the actor Johnny Depp. But in an interview, she poured out her heart. She said these words, when I was 18, I was driving around at 2 in the morning, completely crying, alone, and scared. I drove by this magazine stand that has this Rolling Stone magazine that was, and I was on the cover of it, and it said, Winona Ryder, the luckiest girl in the world. And there I was, feeling more alone than I ever had. C.S. Lewis is right. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know, in spite of all the quantum leaps in technology, one thing remains unchanged. Death. That remains unchanged. Though technology may prolong our lives, it does not preserve us from this grim reality. Joseph Bailey discusses this paradox in his book, The Last Thing We Talk About. 
He writes, this frustrates us, especially in a time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge. We may postpone death, we may tame its violence, but death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow. The Nobel Prize winner, the prostitute, mother, infant, teen, old man. The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient. For the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares none. End of quote. Well, when it comes to death and what comes after it, there are four popular misconceptions. I want you to think about that. There are four popular misconceptions when we talk about what comes after you die. The first misconception we're going to call temporary transition. Temporary transition. Many believe that death simply moves us into a temporary state where others can pray to free us from punishment. You know what that's called? That's called what? Purgatory, that's right. So it's called purgatory. It's thought to be an intermediate place between heaven and hell where the unfinished business of earth is being settled. The second misconception about death or what happens, repeated reincarnation. Now that's an Eastern philosophy, but it's also rapidly being embraced here in the West as well. Reincarnation is the belief that a new birth into another body takes place after you die. It teaches that a person can be recycled eternally, reaching higher levels of happiness if we've lived a good life or lower levels of misery uh, if we have not. Then there's the third misconception. I guess we might call that ultimate conclusion. Ultimate conclusion. Some believe and teach that death is the grand finale of life. I remember a guy in Seaside, the church there, over 90 years of age, unsaved, just all get out. Like one guy said, he was lost as a goose in a snow, snowstorm. And I'd talk with Mr. Sigerson. Oh, he said, listen, whenever you die, that's it. You're gone. Nothing more, you know. So there is no afterlife in this ultimate conclusion. This is all there is. Eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow we die. And when a person dies, that person's existence ends in nothingness. And people embrace that. Misconception, But there's a fourth one. I, I don't quite know how to describe this one, but uh, a lot of people in this country and probably the Western world embrace it. I call it death promotes nearly everyone into heaven. You hear that one? Sure. Sure you do. This is a belief that nearly all persons go to heaven when they die. I mean, God's got to be a... Merciful, loving God, and therefore they go. Exceptions might be such evil, wicked mass murderers as Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. And of course, you probably have to throw Judas Iscariot, who betrayed our Lord, in that list as well. Well, even though these four views are very popular and their followers are very sincere, all four are lies promoted by the father of lies, the devil, Satan himself. The scripture clearly teaches that death occurs to all. It is the ultimate result of sin. We all will die only once, and after death we will be judged by God. And when we do die, those who belong to God immediately go into his presence, where they receive blessing and glory and joy. 
and those who do not belong to God because they have turned down the one provision He made so that they could belong to Him and His Son there at Calvary, they, of course, go into a place called hell, and it will be a place of fire and of eternal torment, the Scripture says. But for every genuine Christian, God has made death, and listen to this, He has made death His or her servant that ushers us into the eternal glories God has prepared for us. And every Christian can and should face death with resolute confidence. Now with that introduction, turn with you would to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read the first eight verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Blessed, dear ones, what a scripture for you and me for giving us resolute confidence when we face this enemy death that has been made our servant. We begin with the first point here in the outline. Facing death with resolute confidence, how can I do that? Why would I do it? Because I will exchange my tent for a house. I will exchange this tent for a house. Look at verse 1. For we know, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Number one, we know this to be absolute truth. We know this to be absolute truth. When it comes to the theories about death, by the way, you hear often hear such words as we think, we believe, we hope. But 1st 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, 1 begins with, we know, we know. Such is scripture's certainty regarding death. You know, carefully study God's word. This book we call the Bible. As you should know, there's no book like this book. God's written revelation that he's preserved for you and me. I mean, for example, think about how we got this. And, and, and I'll tell you, since we rest everything in this book, you need to be certain that it is from God. You need to be certain that it's trustworthy. And you begin to study how we got our Bible. And you see all those prophetic utterances that God had written down here. Even of the Lord's first coming, I think there were 300 of them. And 100% they come to pass. What encouragement that gives me. Examine those. And then study the Jew. Study the Jew and the nation of Israel. And what God has prophesied about these chosen people. Marvel 
that they are still a people in existence today. Marvel that they're a nation today when all around them, they're surrounded by uh, Muslims with Islamic people who would drive them into the sea and utterly destroy them. And yet what? They're still in existence. And just exactly what God said here. Explain if you can the order and the design in the universe plus the order and design in your own body. And it's from the scriptures we find our origin and so forth. And yet the devil's teaching and promotion of evolution is utterly bankrupt in, as, as well in explaining such order and design. And yet fallen blind man keeps right on believing his lies. Amazing. And now when it comes to what transpires after death, the Bible says what? We know. We know these things. God had the apostle Paul write as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to these words. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not even entered into the heart, probably the mind of man, All that God has prepared for those who love him. And then Paul writes these words, For to us, did you get that? To us, God revealed them through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depth of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And I want you to remember, Paul was the one apostle that God took right up into that third heaven called paradise and saw things there and heard things and came back. It's interesting, God didn't let him write about those like he did the apostle John. And you'll remember that Jesus on that cross and those two thieves and the one came to repentance. He said, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Today you shall be with me in paradise Today, you see, dear ones, we know what Paul is now going to reveal is absolute truth. This revelation comes from God. And secondly, because I will exchange my tent for a house, secondly, Paul describes our body as being an earthly tent. He he describes it as being an earthly tent. Every one of us this morning showed up bringing your tent along with you. Now, some of your tents look pretty good. Others... Well, we won't go there. He calls this tent that is your body your house. Why is that? Because it is a tent that you dwell in. This metaphor used by Paul calling your body an earthly tent would have reminded his readers of the nomadic life of those around that they'd be very familiar with. You know, they would, they would put their tent up and they'd be there for a while, especially if they took care of uh, livestock. And then they'd take it down and they'd move on and they'd put it back up. I mean, they'd remember that. Undoubtedly, as Jewish audience would remember about the tabernacle, which is the same word for tent. And how for 40 years they'd go through that desert and then they would have to, they'd set that thing up and be up for a while and then they'd take it down, move on and so forth. And finally what? It got wore out. David wanted to build a temple because the old tent uh, got worn out. And then Paul was a tent maker. So undoubtedly they had that in mind. And he did as he talked about his body being a tent. He speaks of our earthly tent. That's our body as being torn down. Graphic words, your body, my body, being torn down. It means to loose completely. 
to loose completely. The picture's graphic because you can, you loose the ropes of your tent, you pull up the pegs, and what does the tent do? It just completely collapses. That's the picture. You know, years ago, before I had any sense, Mary and the boys and I went from Oregon, Seaside, Oregon, to Arlington, believe it or not, Iowa. There's 36 Arlingtons, by the way. We were going to Arlington, Iowa. We had the old Dodge Diplomat loaded down, and off we went. I remember we got to South Dakota. Really, Mary remembers this better. We got to South Dakota, and Dad started putting up the tent. And I mean, it started blowing. It was, this was Grandpa and Grandma's old tent. I mean, it almost came apart as you're putting it up. And we're out there in the wind and the rain, and there's tears, there's holes in it. I mean, this thing is rotten. We didn't do that again, by the way. But it is a description, a graphic description. I imagine many of you can tell stories as well about your tinting experience as well. And that's the picture he, he has here of your and my body, this old tent that's being worn out. But before we get that, because Paul's going to describe that, and number three in your outline, Paul describes our house that will replace this tent. This is good stuff. He describes your and my house that will replace our tent. Verse 1 again, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building, that's a house from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He described it as being a building from God. As our earthly body came from our parents, we have a new building that comes because He is our Heavenly Father, causing us to be born again when we put our faith in His Son. And that's why Paul says it's a house made, not made with hands. And God is the one who brought about this spiritual birth. But there's something else he tells us about this new home or house that God has prepared for us. He says it is eternal in the heavens. You know what that means? There'll be no repair on this one. No holes, no tears, no rottenness. Incredible. This is, this is, you don't have to change, turn this one in. You don't have to go by and get a new one. No, this is perfect and wonderful and glorious. And he says it's, it lasts for eternity. That's good news. That is really, really good news. Never, it'll last forever. It'll, it'll never in any way wear out. And God gave us a preview of what this body's like because the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came out of that tomb with his glorious resurrected body, his disciples saw it and they described it. And it's beautiful. Remember, he came to them and uh, he said to them, they thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And then he also had something, I think it was a fish, and he ate that fish. And really neat, he could just go through the walls, couldn't he? He could just come and go as he pleased. I mean, it's like he had complete uh, instant travel through time and space. And dear ones, that's the house. That's a picture, a description of the house. Paul says he is ready to exchange for his old, worn-out tent. Number four, our earthly tent causes us to groan with longing. How about yours? Ask my wife, okay? (laughs) Our earthly tent causes us to groan 
with a longing. Verse 2 says, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Paul, you know, did a lot of groaning. He did a lot of groaning, and he had a good cause for doing a lot of groaning. He was aging. He was aging. His body, that is his tent, had been terribly abused. His body was battered and beaten. He endured long, arduous journeys and hard work. He had been shipwrecked three times at least and floated around in the Mediterranean Sea there. He faced death at every turn of the road as he made his journeys, as well as nearly every synagogue he went into. And listen to his testimony in this very letter. He writes to the Corinthians, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Turn back a chapter in this text where you are now to chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 12. More of his testimony, but we have this treasure, means the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Here it goes. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. He's talking about he was dying physically, beaten up, bruised, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. No wonder he goes on and says, Now let me tell you why I'm excited about getting home to be with the Lord. Because I'm going to replace this old tent, beat up, bruised up, torn for a glorified body. Marvelous. There's there's something else that Paul tells us about this new house that he's prepared for us. I'm sorry, go on to the line. Our earthly tent causes us to groan with a longing here. He talks about the fact that he is that way beaten up, but he is looking forward to when he will be home with the Lord with this new body. You know something? You and I groan as well. We'd grown as well for similar reasons in this body, this earthly tent. As we get older, we begin to wear out. And listen, even in infancy, we take a fall, get bruised, get cut, get scarred. We break bones. We get sick. And the effects of sin in this world and in our bodies cause us to groan. And Paul says these groans create a deep longing. I hope they do for you. I hope they do for you. They create a deep longing in you and in me here. He says they cause us to long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I think of Keith and Nils. If you spend time with them, you realize they're just on the edge of going home. Bodies that are riddled with cancer, both of them. And they long to be with the Lord. The ropes are about to be loosened and the temp tent is about to collapse. They long for their new dwelling that they're going to get in heaven. Listen to Paul's own testimony again. For to me to live is Christ. And what? You know what? To die is gain. 
<laughs> to die is gain. But if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. Here he goes. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, he said. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8? We spent some time in Romans 8 before. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, not only this, but also we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Let the tent go. Give me that glorified body is what he is saying there. Our earthly tent causes us to groan with a longing, a longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. You see, we face death with resolute confidence because we know that we will exchange this tent for a glorious eternal house. But there's a second reason he gives for that. Why we face death with resolute confidence. Number two, because this mortal will be swallowed up by life. What a description. This mortal here is going to be literally swallowed up by life. Verses 3 and 4. Actually, we need to go verses 2 through 4. Number one, Paul did, want, did not want to be found naked or unclothed. It's interesting to get a little insight into this guy. He did not want to be found naked or unclothed. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Wow. So Paul did not want to be found naked or unclothed. Here Paul's describing that state when you... Loose the tent, you're done with the earthly body, but you have not yet received your new glorified body. It's that period of time that he's talking about here, being naked or unclothed. I like what John Calvin describes, how he describes it. That great theologian from Geneva describes it, that intermediate state when he writes these words, The blessed state of the soul after death is the beginning of this building. And the glory of the final resurrection, it's consummation. Notice how you got it from the very beginning when you leave this earth to when you get your resurrected body. Yes. The blessed state of the soul after death is the beginning of this building. And the glory of the final resurrection, it's consummation. So what did Paul long for here, though? What was he longing for? Number two. Number two. What Paul longed for was to be raptured. Wow. He wanted to be raptured. I want to be cooled off. So, hang on a minute. This has got to go. (laughs) Thank you. What Paul longed for was to be raptured. Verse 4. All the apostles lived in light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them thought he could come back in my lifetime. And they lived in light of that, just like you and I are told to live in light of that as well. 
Paul described that great event when the Lord comes back for all the redeemed uh, in the air. And uh, it's called the rapture. And he writes these words, We who are alive and remain. There it is. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's Christians who have died. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he further describes that event we call the rapture, the coming of the Lord in the air to receive for himself and give us our new house, our glorified body. And here's what he writes. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That means die. Christians will not all die. But we will all be changed. Both the Christians who passed away and have died and the ones who are still alive when he comes. It will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we all shall be changed. Friday I went over to see Nils. He had to go back into the hospital. They had to take him off of of hospice uh, because he had a problem with it. Well, there was... uh, um, Air and fluid, it was just causing to puff up. So I went to the intensive care, and there he was. I hardly recognized him, to be honest with you, but he's sitting up in his bed. And we visited about these wonderful truths here. And I said, remember, he's a brand new Christian. Brand new. This is all new to him. I said, you know, Nils, I read this portion of Scripture. I said, Nils, there's going to be somebody sitting in a bed just like you. Somebody be going through the very same thing, and suddenly, just like that, we're gone. Instead of dying, you're transformed. You get your new glorified body immediately, and you're just taken immediately into the presence of the Lord. And and I said, it's going to happen to somebody. I'm not saying it's going to happen to you, my dear brother, but it's going to happen to somebody. And I'll tell you, my heart, I sense we have got to be very, very close to that great event. When I understand Scripture and what's going on in our whole world today. Let me hasten to say this, though. Every Christian who goes home before that rapture takes place will be perfect. They're not going to be in the sense, well, I'm up there lacking something. I wish this would take place. No, no, they will be in the presence of the Lord. There will be joy in their heart. There will be glory there. It will be wonder beyond compare. The best that you can imagine you could ever go through here upon this earth doesn't hold a candle to if I should die right now, or you should, and be in the presence of the Lord even though you have not received that glorified body yet. Why is that body given? Because God has plans for you and me, and you need that glorified body to fulfill those plans. And so, when that time comes, He will give you and me our glorified body. So Paul describes this transition from an earthly tent body to entering heaven and ultimately possessing a glorified body or a house or dwelling as that moment when what is mortal is swallowed up by life. I don't know if you ever thought of this. You know what that means? What is mortal is swallowed by life. You can put right next to it, R-A-P-T-U-R-E, rapture, rapture. That's what he's talking about. He says, you know, my number one priority would be, let that happen. But number two priority is, okay, I will die before that and go into the presence of the Lord. And you find out that is 
glorious to him as well. By the way, he uses that same terminology, what is mortal, swallowed up by life, in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, where he describes what is actually going to take place. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, but when the perishable, that's the tent, when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, and here it is, death is swallowed up by life. There it is. Same terminology. What an exciting event. <laughs> what, a, what a glorious, glorious event. Here we undergo death, our bodies die, our tent is loosed and falls down, but then our mortal is swallowed up by life. As Paul said, to be absent from the body was wanted to be present immediately with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief that put his faith in him, Today, 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 you will be with me in paradise. Paul didn't get his wish, did he? (laughs) He didn't get his wish. He missed the rapture, but still he is now rejoicing in the presence of his Lord and Savior, as is every Christian who has also died and now in heaven. You see, we face death with resolute confidence because this mortal will be swallowed up by life. He said, I've come that you might have life. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And then he went on and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Did you get that? He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Third reason Paul gives why you and I can face death with resolute confidence. Because of God's purpose for me, and pledge to me. It's right in the text, verse 5. Because of God's purpose for me, and pledge to me. What a rich verse. Verse 5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So first, God prepared you for his purpose. Huh. That's good. God prepared you for his purpose. Paul, who was originally known, as you know, as Saul of Tarsus, was really a terrorist. How about that? He called himself the chief of sinners. He was a radical. He diligently pursued with venom, hatred, and great zeal those people who called themselves Christians, tracking them down, beating and imprisoning them, and even murdering them. You know his story. He gives it. But like you, if you are a Christian, God had a purpose. And because of his purpose for Saul of Tarsus, he tracked him down. And because he tracked him down, you remember on the Damascus Road, he was out there fully convinced that what he was doing was needful and so forth. And that bright light shone and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? At that point, he got saved. He got wonderfully saved and became the great missionary that we know him to be from the Scriptures. But you know, in order for God to prepare him, he had to do that. In fact, Paul gives the five steps that God does when he has a purpose for you. And those are found in Romans 8, 28, or 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Every step 
of God's preparing him is there as well as his preparing you and me. Here's what it says. For those whom he foreknew, God says, I know exactly who I am going to make my children and save. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. That's that uh, word decree, if you please. I've decreed they're going to get saved. To become conformed to the image of my son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Now stop for a minute. Back when God chose, I should well use the word chose, that's fine. Back when God predetermined that Saul was going to get saved, he wasn't even around. He was as far as God was concerned. And so Paul gets born. He becomes this zealous Pharisee. He's going around persecuting all the people that turned to Christ, of course. And God says, this guy's going to get saved, so now I've got to call him. And so he, where did he, when did he get called? Immediately on that Damascus road, God stepped in and called him. And then it goes on, those he called, he what? Justified. That means he declares them righteous. He clothed or gave, if you please, Saul of Tarsus, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, righteousness. He gave him his life at that time. And those he justified, he says, I also glorified. He began that glorification process the moment he got saved, and it will be completed when Paul is finally home with the Lord. That's the process. Those five golden chain links God is using to prepare you. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. And he glorified you. But notice as well his purpose that causes you to face death with resolute confidence. What's his purpose? What's his purpose? He says that you would be conformed to the image of his son. Huh. Why? What's that all about? He gives you his son's righteousness. He gives you his son's life. He says, I now make you heirs with my son. You will reign with my son. I'm preparing you for a purpose here. And not only that, not only that, the climate, the the, the star thing of all, I have made you my son's Bride. That's the preparation. I want to get you home to be with your groom in that perfect state. What a purpose. What a purpose that God is preparing you and me for if we belong to Him. But number two, God gave you the Spirit as His pledge. God gave you the Spirit as His pledge, it says in verse 5. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Though the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in His glorified body is seated at the right hand of the Father, yet the Bible says when you put your faith in Him, the Lord Jesus Christ also dwells in you, the Father dwells in you, and I gather that is through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 of this book, he writes these words in 21 and 22, Now He who established us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. As a pledge. Arabon. Down payment. I love Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. There Paul further wrote, In him... 
You also, after listening to the message, that's here how to get saved, here your need for getting saved. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, there it is again, Arabon, the down payment, the engagement ring of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. In Romans 8, we're told the Spirit Himself testifies to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8 also makes it clear that if you do not have the Spirit in you, you do not belong to God. You are lost. You are not saved. All in Romans chapter 8. God's purpose for me and His pledge for me to me causes me to face death with complete resolute confidence. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, for I am, here's the word, confident. There it is. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will complete it. (laughs) He'll complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, there's a fourth reason why you face and I face death with resolute confidence. Because I prefer to be at home with my Lord. Because I prefer to be home, at home with my Lord. Verses 6 through 8. Therefore, being always a good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. First, this great desire causes me to be filled with courage. Twice he says it. Causes me to be filled with courage. Paul faced death confidently because his next dwelling was going to be with the Lord whom he deeply loved and longed for. (laughs) You know, he had one advantage. He had already been there. He had actually seen his Lord. He had seen paradise. His next body was going to be the best body. His next life was going to be perfect. And his next move was going to be with the Lord. And what did Paul write about God's love for you and me? He said that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. By the way, in this body, I know that I'm absent from the Lord, even though I enjoy his unseen presence and fellowship and communion with him. But that's like seeing him through a veil. It's not like being there. I enjoy meeting him on the pages of the Bible, his written revelation. I enjoy communing with him in prayer, as you do. But I'm still not home with him yet. I'm still in my fallen body, my worn-out tent. But this great desire causes me to be filled with courage. If you came from a house filled with love, you know what it's like to go back home to some, right? I mean, if you had a, your house was filled full of love and joy and laughter and fun, and you went away for a while, and you went back home, you know what that's like. That's a wonderful experience. Well, this is way, way beyond that in its joy and fulfillment. There was another reason, though, why I prefer to be at home with my Lord. That's because of this preference. I walk by faith, not sight. I walk by faith, not by sight. It's true. I do not see the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never seen him with my physical eyes. It's true. I have never audibly heard him. 
Never reached out and touched him or have him touch me physically. I've never actually talked with some, talked with some, anybody who says to me, Bill, I've gone to heaven and I've seen it all. I've visited with him. I've touched him. I came back. I just want to tell you about that. Some people write about those books, but I have a little bit of a question mark about that. But I've never met any and talked with them that way. It's true. But my faith is completely grounded in and rests in this book. It's completely in this book. I love what the old saint used to say. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. And when it comes to me on my deathbed, if I'm still around, it's not a quick departure. I can say, God said it. Oh, God, I believe it. And that settles it. And soon my faith will be replaced by sight. I'll be at home with the Lord. Very soon, Keith and Nils will replace their faith with sight. They will be home with the Lord. Their faith will instantly become sight. Dan Chafer, in his book, A Better Country, and that's a good book to get. It's really a good book. He attempts to describe this transition, moving from faith to sight. Here's what he writes. He said, one day, maybe not, maybe not for a while, but someday Dan Chafer will breathe his last breath It is that moment that so many people dread, that moment when our greatest fears and our deepest faith will collide. My last glimpse of life on this earth will have been experienced, and all of what I had known as earth will be lost to sight, though not to memory. The moment of my last earthly exhalation will be my first moment of eternal inhalation. I will breathe, ironically, for the last time mortally, and for the first time eternally, simultaneously. Faith shall finally become sight. Then, paradise, seeing my risen Lord, reunion, rejoicing, marveling, the beginning of forever. No longer will I see dimly as through a glass. Paradise will be a sight and a sound, and a feel, and a place I could never have imagined on earth. End of quote. It's good, isn't it? That's really good. And thirdly, lastly, death is not an escape. Death is not an escape. It's the door to my glorious home. Death is not an escape. It is the door. I said before, it has to be your servant. To my glorious home. Verse 8. We have good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Home is where your family is, dear ones. Home in heaven is where your heavenly Father is. Home is where your Lord and Savior is. Home is where your redeemed brothers and sisters are and will be. The whole family will be there. Here in your earthly tent as one of God's redeemed children, he calls you a stranger, an alien, a foreigner, a sojourn. He says your citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. Like Abraham, you seek a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That city is the new Jerusalem. No wonder then Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, 
is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And the apostle John wrote those words you're very familiar with. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know, there it is again, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him. Isn't that great? We will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Even the psalmist Asaph had this desire burning in his heart. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I marvel about how God chose to close this book. 66 books in the Bible, over a thousand chapters. We want to go into how many verses. And I always marvel, how did God decide to close your Bible? What was his last written communication he wanted to get to you and me? I love it. His last written communication was he said, I want to tell you about your home. Isn't that great? That's the last thing he wrote about. The last two chapters, I want to tell you about this home I have prepared for you. And by the way, I will be there. And my son will be there as well. And we will never again be separated. And no sin will enter in there. Nothing that will harm. All tears will be wiped away. That's how he chose to conclude this glorious book. Amazing. Facing death with resolute confidence. Like Nils, like Keith, if the Lord does not come back, you and I will both be there at some point in our life. And this great truth, by the way, let me say this, this great promise, and this is good stuff. It's not for the ones who do not belong to Him. If you're not saved, it's not for you. It doesn't work for you. What terror must be in the heart of the one. And boy, what, what's amazing to me as you hear these stories of people that face death so confidently that are unsaved. They somehow think that if I think it, that it doesn't exist, if I think it, that God will, ha- will let me into his heaven, uh, you know, because I tried to be a good person and God's a God of love and all, that that's the way it's going to be. And God says, I have already told you that is not the way it's going to be. I would never have sent my son if everybody could just waltz into heaven. The only way anybody can get into heaven is if I provide the way and then it's at their doorstep will they receive my son or turn him down or ignore it or just say it isn't true. So if you're here this morning, what I've said is incredible stuff right out of the Bible. It's it's factual. It says, we know, we know, because it comes from God. We can ascertain and confirm that, but you have to belong to him before it can be yours. Having said that, though, I conclude with these thoughts. I can face death with resolute confidence. Why? Because I will exchange this tent for a house, glorious house. I can face death with resolute confidence because this mortal will be swallowed up by life. And I can do so because of God's purpose for me and his pledge to me, his Holy Spirit. And I can face it because I prefer 
to be at home with the Lord. Listen, when you have such a loving Heavenly Father and such a loving Lord and Savior, home with them is a place you want to be, and you know you'll be there in absolute perfection, no sin, You are not dealing with the sin of the world any longer. No more battles to fight. As C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Huh. Precious in the sight of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Precious in the sight of the Lord is Keith. When he breathes his last, is Nils when he breathes his last physically. Paul Azinger once said these words, We think we're in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. When in reality we are in the land of the dying going to the living. And perhaps you know somebody, or you will know somebody, that they find themselves at death's door. Maybe a copy of the message will help them, I don't know. We just want them to find they can face death, you and I can as well, with resolute confidence. And Paul wrote that, and surely he did. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, because if you gave us no hope, there would be none. How we praise and thank you that we know something with beyond the shadow of a doubt. How we thank you that, Lord Jesus Christ, you went through death and you conquered death and sin and Satan. And you came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And he who believes in me and him who sent me will never die, you said, because you give that life. Father, I thank you that even when Keith and Nils and I take my last breath here, we will take our first breath in the eternal glories of heaven. What a rich heritage you've given to us. And how I pray that you'll minister to our hearts, Father, that we will face it with resolute confidence. In Jesus' your name we pray. Amen.